This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Hi, Shane. How are you doing today? Just doing just fine. I'm happy to be here, and I'm wondering how you're doing. Doing great. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say I'm doing okay. I'm a little little stressed out about work stuff, but that's par for the course. Yes. So. Believe me, it is. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it seems like it's always busiest right before hunting season, you know, right when you're trying to get out in the woods and you gotta tend to real life stuff. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. Well, we're delighted to have you on. Uh to the point where we did something that we don't typically do, which is thought through carefully how we wanted to approach the, the conversation with you. Um, right. and, and we've, we, you know, Jim and I have both I, you know, been follow followed you fairly closely over the years. And, uh, I've got a pretty decent sense of what you've been up to in recent years by listening to some, uh, your recent podcast with with Randy Newberg and, and Ben O'Brien, and there's so much the, of what you do that I think is important. And l- looking forward to diving into that a little bit. And and then there's also some areas where I think that our threat assessments are a little different, yours and ours. Um, we w- we look forward to like exploring what. Uh, motivates us to do what we're doing and how it connects with what motivates you to do what you do. Sure. Well, that sounds like a good platform for discussion. Yeah, Shane, do you, do you want to talk about uh, your company conservation visions and some of the things you're working on? I know you have the wild food initiative and, and tell us about your company and the things you're, you're doing right now. Well, conservation visions is a, an organization, a company I started after I left uh, government and left my various positions there. Um, It's called Conservation Visions in the plural because I believe that there are are many visions, uh, many outlooks and perspectives that that can contribute to a conservation outcome that's best for wild creatures and best ultimately for humanity. The, um, the company is based in St. John's, Newfoundland, but we are probably one of the most connected entities, certainly in the conservation space that I know of, in that while in the North American space, people are familiar with the work on the North American model or familiar with the Wild Harvest Initiative, um, which is a big enough program in and of itself, Uh, Conservation Visions is actually directly linked with many international efforts, such as the Convention on Biodiversity, the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, the scientific and technical body that advises the Convention on Biodiversity. Um, We are a, a player and representative for IUCN, which is the World Conservation Union, the largest and most influential conservation organization in the world, I think it's fair to say. Uh, I serve as the Vice Global Chair for Sustainable Use. 
and human livelihoods for that international body. Uh, I serve as the international liaison for uh, the North American Wildlife Society. Uh, a company and organization and my staff, we actually work as the, um, the head of the policy and law division for an international organization in Europe called the CIC, which is the International Organization for the Conservation of Game and Hunting on that continent. Um, and so, um, you know, the company is uh, certainly more deeply embedded in international issues than any North American-based uh, organization that has hunting anywhere near its focus. Uh, but those worlds of hunting-based organizations in North America and international spaces are not really all that well connected in today's world, which is a shame. My mission in engaging with those international bodies through conservation visions is to try to bring the North American experience to the world. And it is not well known at all. Your listeners may be familiar with things like the North American model or topics such as that. But right. believe me, most of the leading conservation entities and organizations in the world I've never heard of it. Um, and so part of what I have been trying to do for the last 10 years through Conservation Visions is to bring that story to the world and to bring the efforts that are being made in other parts of the world for conservation to the awareness of people in Canada and the United States and Mexico, which are also generally very unfamiliar with what's happening in the international space. And yet, um, we live on one planet, we live in one biosphere, we have only one space to call home. Um, and so what we do to influence conservation in one area of the planet is intricately interconnected with what is being done elsewhere. We see the North American model as a valued enterprise in part because it unites two countries in a shared paradigm or approach to conservation. Well, it is my view <laughs> that um, all of us, including those of us who firmly believe in sustainable use of living natural resources as an important component of our ecology, uh, that we begin to think about a global model uh, of conservation. And this is what my company works for. So we will do things as diverse as I will appear somewhere to speak on a particular issue on sustainable use in the world, whether that's the Faroe Islands or London, England, or wherever it might be. Um, but then on the other hand, we will be contracted by governments or industries to look at major overviews of a particular issue or problem, um, such as the sustainable use of seal populations worldwide. So it's um, when you open the, the box on this entity called Conservation Visions, there's a, there's a lot of things swirling around <laughs> inside that enterprise. And much of it um, is unfamiliar to the North American audience. Some of it is very unfamiliar to the European or Asian or African or South American audiences. Gotcha. 
Well, what brings us to this to this reaching out to you was your book, which is relatively new, 2019, the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation. We wanted to do a podcast about it, talk about the model itself, and uh, let's let's get let's get into that. You had, yeah, I guess a, a particular interest to, to us is what to what extent is it aspirational and what extent is it instantiated you mean the model itself yeah well i mean i i hear that term a lot these days about the model being aspirational um i'm not quite sure where that thread began uh but it's an interesting enough uh question you know uh I mean, I think uh, certainly uh, the founding efforts around the model were definitely aspirational. We were um, in a circumstance which very few people anywhere, including in Canada and the United States, really you know, think a lot about, or maybe it's impossible for us to comprehend now, just how dire the circumstances for wildlife were at the time, a hundred years ago and more, that groups of people, some of them very well-known uh, personalities, such as Roosevelt, Grinnell, you know, Hornaday, Pinchot, these, these kinds of people, and many not that well-known, you know, collectively came together out of a sense of awareness that something just absolutely had to be done to, to rescue wildlife. I mean, the Boone and Crockett Club's original display of heads and horns was to encourage people to see the remnants of species populations that they would never see again. They right. would all be gone. That's what they fully believed and understood. And they had reason to believe this. Um, and so there was this hope. Uh, there was this need to conceive of things that had never been uh, to try and rescue, you know, one of the great land masses of the world and its abiding oceans and freshwater systems and all the wildlife that was contained therein, there was no small tinkering that could be done to solve this problem. These individuals had to think at large scale about transformative change. And so in that sense, of course, the, the principles articulated in the model at that time especially were indeed aspirational because after all, none of what was hoped for existed. We didn't have international treaties identifying wildlife as an international resource. We did not have science embedded as a basis. In fact, we had very little wildlife science to embed. Um, you know, the idea that we would forbid citizens from selling wildlife uh, meat and, and so on and so forth that was that was an outrageous idea at the time and and fostered bitter recrimination and division amongst people uh all including calling the people who proposed it you know non-patriots and and people who were about to undermine the particularly the american system um, so, you know, many of those principles at the time were aspirational. Are they aspirational now? I would hope so, in the sense that we all hope to do even better than we've done. 
But obviously, many of the principles of the model have been long applied now. I mean, we developed the North American Migratory Bird and Convention Act in 1916. 1916. Yeah. That's 107, 108 years ago. Europe and other parts of the world have only been developing such conventions in the last 30 years to 40 years, for example, and some much more recently than that. So we did have a great aspirational component, and but we did actually make it an embedded, actual, functioning thing. You cannot hunt wildlife in your country, the United States of America or in Canada, except for legitimate purpose and by holding a legal permit or license, whatever, to do so. That is not aspirational. That is the law. You cannot leave the carcass of your animal that you harvest, you know, in just shoot it and leave it wantonly in the field, not just because it would be an outrageous thing to do, but because by law in every state and province of the two countries, this is a, 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 an act for which you can be fined or otherwise charged. So, um, you know, we have really actualized not just the principles, the seven principles of the model, we have actualized and embedded many policies and laws that specifically were developed in support of those principles. Uh, so in that sense, I think the, the model uh, clearly uh, is, is both. Um, it is a, an aspirational uh, idea, was, and hopefully remains to some extent. We all need to hope for better things. Um, but its practical implications, you know, have been many, varied, and enormously impactful for wildlife on this continent. There's no, absolutely no question of that. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with all of that. Uh, but there are areas where I think that we've strayed quite a ways from it from following the model um not not necessarily like because of people breaking the laws but maybe because the laws need to be amended mm -hmm. in some some ways like when when i look at who uh are the role models in hunting today so many of them are people that shoot way more game animals than they need, like 20, 30 big game animals a year, five, six elk and variety of other big game animals. And um, then all of those animals go on social media and they're all accompanied by logo wear and gear hashtags. And it just feels to me like that it, both in terms of doesn't seem to be aligned with denying wildlife and economic value, like is stipulated as one of the, that's one of the ways one of the tenants is stipulated. And, and, and it, and, and it doesn't, 
seem consistent with harvesting for a legitimate purpose, even if all that meat is consumed by somebody. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess I wonder what you, and the reason this is important to me is because we're talking about the people that are modeled as like what you should be striving for as a hunter. Mm-hmm. They have millions of followers on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. And that's yeah. number four on the seven principles, ensuring wildlife is killed for legitimate purposes. So, yes, that's absolutely true. Um, and another um, aspect of the model, of course, is the, the banning of the commercial sale of dead wildlife. But mm-hmm. people sometimes, with respect to that principle, they sometimes say, well, therefore, there should be no economic activity around wildlife. That, that was never the right, that, right. right. But it, it, in some, at some level, do they enter? Maybe not. Maybe there's no, no intersection no, there. No, no, I think you raise a very, very, very legitimate point. And it's, as a matter of fact, it's even a, it even has broader application. Um, you know, once we decided to marry uh, more commercial interests with hunting in the sense of, um, you know, television programming and so on and so forth, um, and with the rise of social media, it was almost inevitable that in this culture, the hunting culture, as in virtually every culture that's out there, education, health, it doesn't matter, that uh, we would create, if you will, um, personalities that would become very well recognized. And once they became very well recognized, then people would look for them, you know, sponsors would come to them to use the notoriety that they had gained. And that in turn would increase their notoriety to some extent. And so it's a system that feeds on itself. The model is not um, the conservation policemen of the world, however. I think that's important to understand. There are legal and uh, restricting infringements that the model has provided, which are very broad, disallowing the sale of you know, dead, dead wildlife, dead meat, uh, dead meat from dead uh, game animals, etc., um, and prescribing the specific purposes for which animals could be harvested for for meat, for recreation, for for protection of property if necessary. You know, in the case of some or life, but undoubtedly, there would be ways found through that maze of principles and laws that would lead to excess to one form or another. Um, and that is you know, just part, I think, of what humanity does and what humans do. But I think it's important to distinguish that that is not necessarily, and I'm not suggesting that you are suggesting this, that's not necessarily a failure of the model, nor is it necessarily in a sense, the responsibility of the model. It is the way that under any model that is created, there will be opportunities for what you perceive and many other people may perceive as excesses to actually occur. For me, for over 25 years, you know, I have 
sort of warned against um, the rise of uh, sort of the persona, if you will, of the hunter uh, becoming more important than the animal pursued. If we look at the historic writings of peoples, uh, not just the Jack O'Connor era, if you will, but long, long before then, most of the descriptions around hunting, not all of them, but the vast majority, tend to tended to express admiration, awe of the animals and nature. Um, it was not the celebration of the hunter. In the past 30 years or more, particularly when television and hunting came together, and I warned about this at the time, this is not a new thing for me, it's a, it's, 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 it's an, it's a, it's a long-standing concern that we would generate a circumstance where the hunter and not the hunted were lifted and exalted. I think this has been a mistake for hunting in general. And I don't think it applies to everybody, of course. You know, it's not everybody who's smitten with this, this bug or whatever. But I really feel that if you want to uh, um, express hunting in its most profound and meaningful ways, it is the animal and its incredible beauty and capacities and the landscapes in which it lives and to which it is adapted that ought to be the things that we bring forward, whether it's in, in any medium. It is wrong, I think, or inaccurate for people to simply blame the medium, you know, oh, it's television or oh, it's social media or it's whatever. We as human beings decide what we will say about our experiences. We as individuals decide what we will write about our experiences. So you even look at the way people are presented in these circumstances. I mean, you know, I keep uh, an image of Jack O'Connor, uh, an old cover of Sports Afield where he's, you know, there in his beat up hat and his, you know, plaid shirt and he's, 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 kneeling next to an elk that he has that he has hunted um and you can see that the the, the image is about the animal right it's about the animal <laughs> it's not about him and i totally agree with you that we have in lots of publicly facing ways such as on social media or in television we have reversed this and we have placed the emphasis on the hunter and not on the hunted. And I believe this is a fundamental mistake. And so I think in that sense, we're probably agreeing here to some extent about this. Yeah. Um, and I also think it, it demeans the animal in some, well, it does to me. Yes, that, I'll leave it there. It demeans the animal. But it also exalts the hunter in a way that's uh, not justified. You know, we hunt today with extraordinarily accurate 
wonderfully produced weapons, firearms, mm -hmm. that if you do a few very simple things and practice and are thoughtful that you are inflicting pain on a creature that feels it no different than you or I would, you can shoot, you know, very accurately and you can train almost anybody, you know, to do that. I, I've sometimes said we could probably train a chimpanzee to shoot accurately with these amazing modern weapons that we have. And for that reason, and for many others, I think presenting the hunter as the most capable <laughs> in this engagement or contest, if you will, is just patently ridiculous. There is not a wild animal out there, and I have lived with them, not hunters go for a week or so, I lived with them for years. There's not a wild animal out there from a, from a, a raven to an elk to a grizzly bear that does not feel and sense their environment a thousand times more emphatically than modern humans. That just happens to be the truth of the matter. Yeah, so, absolutely. I live yeah. with pack llamas, and they're the yeah. same way. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you, you just you just have to you just have to marvel at them, really. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is what the older, the earlier generations of writers and communicators about hunting. This is what they did. You know, I was in Johannesburg, South Africa, and went to a, a very famous um, museum there. Uh, deals with a lot of issues of paleontology, human evolution, you know, and the finds that have been made there. And some of the, they also showed many films there, uh, some of them very old films, old black and white films, where uh, anthropologists had traveled and filmed um, groups of, of hunters from that continent. Um, these were the black indigenous cultures of, of, of the continent of Africa hunting. And there was this one amazing film uh, with the Kung uh, people, um, the desert people, the amazing trackers who speak in the famous click languages. It's extraordinary, the talented people. Um, they were hunting uh, with the little bows, um, poison tipped. And uh, they were hunting a kudu, very grainy, you know, jumpy black and white film and uh, they were explaining that running eight hours behind this animal after you hit it with the first arrow in the blazing sun of the desert was about the limits of, that a man a human being could could maintain eventually this uh, this led them to say in the first several hours of running, we follow the kudu. We follow him through his tracks in the sand, which you and I would never, you know, we, we, we'd never be able to follow him. It's amazing what they can do. It's incredible. And, um, but they said, after that, we become the kudu. We no longer look for his sign. 
we become the animal that we are following. At the end of that film, this magnificent animal goes down. It can't, it can no longer stand. It's the, 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 the toxin is taking effect. And these three black hunters with their weapons come up and stand not far from it. And they speak to one another, but they whisper. They whisper to one another out of respect for this animal. And then one of them kills the animal by lancing it through the ribs and into the heart and lung cavity. But there is no high fives. There is no, there is no celebration of themselves. There is only the celebration and respect for the animal that they have killed. And in my view, whenever we depart from that, I think we go down the wrong road with respect to hunting. All right. That's a great story. Yeah, it is. We we did a podcast, uh, one, myself and one of the other Hunt Quality contributors about uh, there's a sociologist, a Canadian sociologist, uh, Lee Borshaw, Lee, that wrote, uh, he studied the Jutiskanzi people very intensively. Are you aware with that, of that? Just very vaguely. I know. Okay. The, they also great. spoke with like this, the, they're, yeah. they're from parts of native parts of Namibia. Yeah. And they also have like that click type, one of those click type languages. Yeah. And he documents their, like cultural mores as they portend to hunting and they had all these uh customs that like would enforce humility Mm -hmm. like like when they would they would they would uh when somebody shot something they would go out to pack it out and they, there would be a lot of teasing of the person that shot it. Like you brought us out here to pack home this bag of bones. And meanwhile, it could be this beautiful animal. that's going to feed them for weeks. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yes. it, they call it shaming the meat. They you bring know. them yeah. down. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, you know, I mean, all of these, um, all of these uh, complex ties between experiential knowledge. I mean, these people lived with animals. They depended on them to survive. And all of these cultural attributes that came out of that experience were all, again, for the first, you know, 180,000 of years of modern humans' existence. Uh, they all focused on explaining to the next group of hunters who arose, who are mostly men, but not always, that don't ever put yourself first. Right. Don't ever put yourself first, even if you are the best hunter in the world. And you remember that 
not every human is as good at that activity as every other one. I'm reminded of that every time I go afield. Yeah, <laughs> right. the, it's a story of my life. In, <laughs> in the in the uh, original form, you know, um, these were often very gifted individuals, and many cultures have expressed that certain individuals in the community provided the vast majority of the meat, and they took it as a great joy but they had to be humble about it to share mm -hmm. all of that without ever saying, oh, I gave you that meat. You know, I'm the person who gets all that meat. And what we, what we see in modern society as a, a related phenomenon, but which most people don't connect, is that those best hunters were often individuals who were gifted in some way incredibly acute eyesight, for example, or extraordinary agility, or great speed, or great strength, or great hand-eye coordination. And that is why I have said many times in debates and discussions around an unrelated issue in some sense, the salaries of professional athletes, that I have said for 40 years or more, there is no limit on what we will pay superb athletes because they demonstrate the qualities of exceptionalism that were absolutely critical to the survival of many hunter-gatherer societies because they were the best of the best, often because of just in inherent capacity, you know, genetic, genetic gifts that, of course, they practiced. And over time, as Aristotle said, they became perfect at it. Uh, like, that's why we will be mesmerized by the Michael Jordans of the world forever. And in fact, if we hadn't embraced hunting as part of our ecology and had stayed as leaf eaters, the Michael Jordans, the Messies uh, of the world would never have emerged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting connection for sure. I did some I did some work with the native village of Gamble in Alaska on St. Lawrence Island. I worked for them for about three years. And I, of course, every time I was there, I would always talk hunting. And one of the guys that that I got to be friends with said the same thing. It's it's never about the hunter. It's always the animal sacrificing itself for the hunter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even I mean, though, like, like what you said, Shane, they each village has their their hunters that are the best of yep. the best. Yep. But they still believe that it's always about the animal just sacrificing, giving itself up to the hunter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, um, it's funny. I just I just finished an article for Sports Afield just yesterday on P-22, the famous mountain lion in, in, in Hollywood that, uh, you know, eventually was captured and, and euthanized, but which, you know, there was a great deal of controversy. The animal lived in a very small area where the famous Hollywood sign is across two giant freeways. And, 
to make it there. It's a quite a quite an interesting story. But one of the things that emerged at the end of that was a conflict between tribal peoples or a tension between tribal peoples and non-indigenous peoples uh, over where the mountain lion of how the mountain lion would be treated after death and where the mountain lion would be buried. And um, scientists, you know, collected some hair from from this animal, P-22, as he was known, um, which was very famous films, National Geographic studies, you know, all these kinds of things. Uh, but they collected some hair for genetic sampling and many of the tribal members in the region, the Santa Monica Mountains, um, you know, had a very strong belief that mountain lions were, were brethren and were teachers in their culture. And therefore they were against, you know, taking samples from the body before the body was actually buried in a secret location. And so we see these issues, if you will, these cultural identity issues, um, they're still relevant, aren't they? I mean, they still play out in many, many, many ways. And it's still often difficult for everyone around the table to reconcile themselves with one another's views. But I believe that um, we are so, at one level, identical to all the others. Like I, I will not accept any notion that human beings are better, more capable, you know, animals than any other. I, 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 I fundamentally reject that idea completely. And people who say, well, you know, we have religion and we have art and we put men on the moon. I say yes. And, you know, a young shorebird born in the Canadian Arctic can accompany its parents south to Patagonia one time. Right. And then the next year turn around and go right back to the same place where its nest was, where it emerged from the egg. So please show me the human capable of doing that. Um, and that's another reason why, first of all, I fundamentally believe that separating us from our own ecology by suggesting that humans should just become voyeurs of nature and not participants in life and death cycles is patently ridiculous. It's so unnatural that how anyone can call it a natural role for humans is beyond me. But the second thing is that to suggest in this relationship between the hunter and the hunted that the sometimes successful hunter, <laughs> sometimes successful hunter is somehow better than the animal that eventually succumbed is like saying that the cheetah that on its 10th run at the gazelles finally killed one is somehow better than the gazelles who in 90% of the encounters actually escaped. You know, it's a, mm. it, it's a silly, it's a silly notion, really, isn't it? When you think about it, you know, and but it's a captivating one for for many. 
totally true. Yeah, that's totally true. And of course, that's another part of our humanness, right? That we 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 have, right? We, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's sure. I mean, I, I often well, I often say that I my impulse is to use hunting to draw attention to myself, like. It's only because I see it as bad for hunting that I don't do it, but I share the impulse. Yeah, that's a very honest thing yeah. to say. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to pull in this thread for just a minute more, and then we can move on to some other things. So, it is interesting that for for a long time now, you've you've been cons- you've had concerns about, as you put it, people elevating themselves above the animal. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. or as, as I often put it, I say, um, using dead and dying wildlife to draw attention to yourself, mm-hmm. um, which I think is probably we're saying very similar things when we say those two things. And, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, I think a lot of people when with the advent of hunting TV, they felt instinctively like there was this did not portend well for hunting and i think that that those those instincts have borne out in spades personally so what 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 i see and this goes back to uh, like what i'm about to say goes back to my concerns about us adhering to the north american model is that as a consequence of people using hunting to draw attention to themselves there's been an increased emphasis on people that that use hunting in that way to get the thing that's hardest to get. Maybe maybe it's not in Newfoundland, but in the lower 48, it certainly is. And that is access to game and quality hunting locations. And so what I think that TV and social media has done is it's created a a very intense market for access to hunting land. And it's, it's because I, it's a, I think that's happened as a consequence of people putting themselves above what they hunt, because now it's turned into this thing where, you know, you want to be as cool as the other guy that you know, other people you know that hunt. So you got to shoot as big a buck as him. So you better get a bigger lease. And uh, it turns it hunting into this like competition and this this like status symbol thing. And and so I think that that's why we've ended up in this situation where hunting land is is non-existent in some parts of the, the of the country more or less like there'll be some small wildlife management areas in some states that the public can hunt but they're comically overcrowded and meanwhile uh places farms and ranches that maybe used to support 10 20 hunters a year there's one person that has it all locked up for themselves and i see this as eroding the like the democracy component of the North American model. And I see it as the as one of the biggest problems in hunting today. And like I get like I say, I think that the the root cause of it 
is the just exactly this thing, this thing of people using hunting to draw attention to themselves. Um, I agree with you that the uh, that the problem is real. I'm not so sure I can agree with you, though, about the cause. Um, the evidence is pretty clear that throughout human history, certainly since the time of agriculture and the time of what we might call settlement and the rise of nation states, countries, if you will, that wildlife has always, always been an incredibly valued resource. It was valued by the common person, if you will, because it was a source of sustenance. But royalty or those in power or those with wealth have forever tried to, um, you know, retain as much access and often privileged access to wildlife as possible. Revolutions in Europe were actually, in some cases, you know, ignited by this idea that the there would be an exclusive domain for the privileged, if you will, whether that was royalty, the king, or whoever it might be. And of course, we know the atrocious laws that were developed to prevent the, in quotation marks, common person from actually having access to the game. So long before there was a social media, or long before there was a television, or long before there was a radio, or any of those technologies, we see patterns in human history where these kinds of phenomena emerged. And it's really important to point out, I think, in this very interesting conversation, that um, these circumstances took place when we had very few people, relatively speaking, on the planet <laughs> or in the countries involved. It is also very interesting to note that the fervor that gave rise to the North American model was in part a reaction to that very phenomenon in the sense that they we did not want and the early American citizens did not want that to be the case. They wanted there to be a true democracy in all things. And it's interesting that that notion of democracy, which is so fundamentally associated with the American and the American Revolution and the American Constitution and all those kinds of things, um, actually, you know, paid attention to wildlife as something so valued that democratic access to it should be enshrined. I mean, that's pretty bloody amazing when you think about it, you know, mm. that far back. Yeah. So I think that what I would say with regard to this phenomenon is, you know, wealth and exclusive access are often expressed in human cultures in many different ways. Wildlife has always, always been an incredibly valued resource, even for the wealthiest of people in the world, you know, the kings of England or whatever it might be. Um, and 
these tendencies towards keeping the best and creating the best have a long, long history. You know, the rise of game ranching, the creation of these grotesque giants that we see behind fences today, mm -hmm. you know, white tails that have the antler mass of elk and cannot even lift their heads. I mean, these, these things. I mean, they're outrageous, of course, but it's important to recognize that the gamekeepers of ancient Europe, medieval Europe and post-medieval Europe, were phenomenally adept at creating massive stags through feeding, through manipulation of the natural habitat, obviously not as technological as today. So I think, I really think that we need to understand that some of what we see today is definitely worsened or influenced by platforms and technologies, including social media, etc. But some of the latent inherent tendencies towards this, these phenomena have been manifest in human cultures for a very long time, but not the hunter-gatherer cultures that we talked about earlier in this right, show. Right, right. But in the modern cultures that emerged. That's yeah, and, and there might, it could be that there. it's just a, a we have a different emphasis, Austin, and you in that regard. But that, no, that's that makes perfect sense what you said. It, yep. it, it, it predates being able to gloat about it on social media. This, yep. this, yep. But, but they still gloat. I look. I look at this at, at, at the links people will go to 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 uh, you know sequester access for themselves, and then all the media that they generate around it. I mean, that's what hunting TV uh, hunting TV happens on private land more for the the vast majority of it, you know. And then people that just kill way more than they need and put it on social media and the way they kill way more than they need is by having exclusive access that just feel like the ego is wrapped up in some of it well i'm sure it is um there's no doubt and none of us escape that phenomenon of course in our lives either you know we have to be honest with ourselves but um it is also true and this is an encouraging aspect of of, of this reality you know, when I first began to raise concerns about the marriage between hunting and television, um, the rule of thumb in the industry was, let's try to get three kill shots in each 22-minute program. Then, it's hard to believe, but that, that, that was actually, you know, that was kind of a metric. And two was certainly considered essential and then one and so forth. And gradually over time, partly through these kinds of dialogues and criticisms and, you know, sensitivity raising, we have circumstances where um, many programs have moved away from that. Many organizations that sponsor programs have said you will not even show a kill shot, for example. Um, and, um, and, and the graphic nature of many of those earlier programs has been lost, just as we are seeing fewer and fewer photographs, but we still are seeing them, but fewer and fewer photographs of 
you know, terribly distorted and wounded animals and so on and so forth in, on social media. My point is not to contest that some people are in the position to gain access to more wildlife than they need, and it's done as part of a series, a show, whatever. But it is to say that some of the concerns and sensitivities being expressed here, you know, are playing out and having some influence. And so the positive side I see in that is that it means it may take a hell of a long time and it may be frustrating for those of us who are in the game at the moment. But these, these, these criticisms or these discussions over time, they can have impact and they can influence the way things are done. And so, you know, if you looked at all the television shows that are out there all around the world, for example, around hunting, because they're not just in the United States, there's others, in many countries. Um, you can now see a range, I think, of where some of the efforts are very respectful, certainly far more respectful than they used to be. And some still are not nearly as respectful as they ought to be. So I guess the as we wade into this issue of media and how the media is used to either advance individuals or advance commercial aspects of hunting, if you will, um, we also, I think, need to be fair and recognize that, um, you know, some things have definitely changed and that should encourage us all, I think, to try to argue for more change along the directions that we want to see. Yeah, this is something Jim and I talk a lot about. Like Jim thinks that hunting TV could be rescued if we just got rid of the stuff that's like not tasteful. In my, I see the tasteful hunting shows personally as the most insidious because what I see is that that is, again, creating a market for access to hunting lands. And it's not even just implicit. It's explicit. There are TV shows that show you hunting, attractive hunting content, and then try to get you to buy the property. Yeah. Like Whitetail Properties is one. The Hunting Land Man is another one. Um scores of shows are filmed with an outfitter and it serves at that's leasing up private land, lots of it. And that serves as an advertisement for that outfitter. So I, I guess like when I look at the landscape, like my, my threat assessment, I rank uh, threats to like based on, a lack of public acceptance of hunting fairly low. I don't think media is helping us there either. What I think the threats are is intense commodification of access to game. So, um, that I, I don't, it's not, it's not anodyne to me personally that the shows have gotten more tasteful. Well, there's, there's, several channels of thought here now that we're engaging in. I mean, it is encouraging to me anything that shows, uh, if we're going to show it at all, 
anything that shows hunting in a more respectful uh, circumstance vis-a-vis the animal and what the experience is meant to be about. In other words, the experience of nature being out there, learning, learning from the animals, essentially, which is what we did. That's why we became good hunters. We, we learned from the animals that hunted. Um, and being, you know, um, the alive human um, that we are um, when we are engaged in that activity, which is at a level that no other activity in nature that I've experienced is capable of providing. And I worked as a research scientist for decades. So I I was out there with them. I was in the air. I was in the mountains. I was in the wilderness. As a matter of fact, I only worked in wilderness. My only access to all of my research areas for 25 years was by aircraft. Yeah. There was no other access. That sounds wonderful. I know. Yeah. And so (laughs) when I, when I see, but, but still, while I have run up and hit with my hand battling woodland caribou stags just to see if I could do it as a 25 year old man. And I could, (laughs) um, you know, even that is, you are not the aware individual that you are when you hunt. And so anything that properly portrays that activity, I am for, and I encourage anything that doesn't do that. I'm kind of not in favor of, it's kind of like yeah. the Irishman who landed on the remote island and he staggered ashore and he met some of the locals. And his first question to the locals was, do you have a government? And they said, oh, yes. Well, he said, I'm against it. <laughs> right. <laughs> In his Irish nature, he was just against government. And so I think that the way that we if we're going to talk about hunting, I think the way we do it is very important. To your point that that fosters uh, this and and com- compounds the problem of hunter access. You know, we have many factors that are influencing that, right? If you look at the United States of America, for example, and you look at the proportion of land that's in public ownership, if you will, and you look at the regions of the country, there's it's very different, isn't it? Between say the Northeast and the West or the South, and, and so on, and similarly in Canada, but. You know, Canada has a lot more what you, you know, public access land just because we have far fewer people in a very big country. Um, But there are many, many, many reasons why hunting access has changed fundamentally and worsened. Um, People who own private land that at one time would open their gate or allow people to come on their land to hunt during hunting season often say, you know, more and more say, no, we don't want that. Or it's leased out. Um, or, it's or it's leased, leased. out, which, yeah. is, which is another issue. You know, so there are. My only point here is that there are many issues that are driving, and I totally agree that access is a problem. And I think most people in the hunting world, including members of state government agencies or or others, you know, would absolutely agree that this issue of access and more democratic access, if you will, if we can use that term, to hunting opportunity is a major challenge in many, many parts of the United States today, but the United States is not alone in this. And um, not all of it is driven by personalities who are in a media space, obviously. You know, there's there, there are many moving parts with respect to that. So where I live in Eastern Montana, it's like considered 
always been considered a prime hunting area. Like we have abundant pronghorn, mule deer, whitetail, elk. Oh, yeah. Um, Amazing. like in the, in the eighties, in the, in the eighties, uh, up until the eighties, I'm told by my friend's dads that they could access all this land around here to, to hunt. And when I run the counterfactual with going forward from that time to now without hunting TV and hunting social media in the mix, I arrive at a world that would be much more like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just, yeah. So it's just like a difference. Well, I mean, I think it's, I, I, I think it's a component and I think it's an interesting component and I think it's a component that needs to be explored more, but I would only add that there is, you know, there, it's like a lot of issues around the questions of commercialization. Um, you know, um, it's also important to look at dimensions of that and say, you know, where does the money go? For example, that's another consideration in this broad discussion, right? Um, You know, there are people who are very uh, affronted by, you know, high selling tags, for example, or things of that nature. The counter argument, of course, that some people apply and which I think is validity is that if that money is going directly into the conservation of species, well, you know, that puts a different, that puts a different spin on that, you know, kind of thing that, and that conservation effort benefits all of us and benefits all of wildlife. Um, So I think to me, um, there's a spectrum here is what I would share with both of you. I think there's a spectrum here and that spectrum is partly that, there has always been a tendency to, to if you could, to safeguard the best of wildlife to yourself, you know, and that plays out through human history. Um, there has always been um, a desire to have unique experiences, and whether that is, I don't know, sailing a yacht around the Mediterranean or, or something else, you know. Wealth gives access. That's a that's a reality too. Um, and what again is kind of amazing in the context of the model discussion, which is where you know we we sort of started from in this conversation, is to think that in a sense, one hundred and more years ago, it really started in about the eighteen seventies. This thinking, you know, bubbled up where all of these kinds of issues were were being grappled with. I mean, they weren't exactly the same, but why was democracy of hunting even a, an idea? Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at a, in, in 1919, I, I read an article by Aldo Leopold in the Journal of Forestry, I think it was. Yeah, and he was in, and he was prognosticating about like eventually the western forests are going to be become more crowded with sportsmen as um everything gets turned or i don't remember i said but like like the rest of the country becomes more and more devoted to shooting preserves i'm like wow this was 
103 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Totally true. I mean, you had the wealthy, you know, you had wealthy families, the Vanderbilts, the, the Rockefellers, you know, the, 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 the sort of established royalties, if you will, within early America, you know, building great forest estates and, you know, manicuring the landscapes for what they viewed as most beautiful and, and wanting to have it for themselves and their children and their families and so on and so forth. Again, I mean, I think this is why the issue of principles, the issues of philosophical guidelines are so important because we're all individuals. You know, as I say to people, how many ways of getting through life are there? Well, tell me how many people there are. 8.3 billion? Yeah. 8.3 billion different ways of going through life. Whether you're Christian or Muslim, whether you're black or you're white or you're Sudanese or you're American or, you know, that's, we're all different. We're all unique in that sense. But at the same time, we all share certain passions. And I think the important thing about guidelines, just like the important thing about laws, are not so much that they should penalize anyone, but that they take into account that not everybody is going to do, you know, things that are in the best interest of a large number of people. And that there will be lots of people who will naturally tend to want to do the very best thing for just themselves. Now, as an animal, I don't fault another animal species for that. I don't fault the dominant lion for killing the cubs and breeding the females that come into estrus more quickly. I may not, you know, like to watch that happen or something, but, you know, I don't fault the individual animal for pursuing what essentially is his exclusive right. And to some extent, I have to be honest with myself and say that therefore, I have to try to understand us human animals in somewhat that same way. That doesn't mean, however, that allowing worrying, worrisome trends of one form or another to simply go on is the best approach to take because in this issue of democracy of hunting, there are many dimensions. There's the democracy that lots of people won't want to do it. That was always the case. You know, the idea that every American citizen hunted in the United States pre or post civil war is a ridiculous notion, completely unsubstantiated by, by historical fact. And unsustainable. <laughs> unsustainable. And also the fact that many American citizens couldn't even afford uh, the, the cost of a rifle and ammunition in many circumstances. But so there was the democracy was not that everybody would get in there and do it. The democracy was you would have the choice and as an American citizen and that you would have some level of equal opportunity within that choice which is number seven of the principle yeah right and protecting so, the democratic allocation of citizen opportunity to harvest wildlife yes so you know 
there's a lot of dimensions here. Um, and the human society is a messy business on many fronts. And I guess we have to recognize that those of us who are involved in this amazing world where we are thinking about, talking about, having podcasts about wildlife and not about, I don't know, investment banking or something. Those of us who are, are lucky enough to have these dialogues need to also realize that in a valued world of wildlife, um, every human foible and every human gift and every human blessing really will be drawn out. And, you know, you will have the people, you know, like wealthy individuals such as the Roosevelt's and the Pinchos, for example, and others who never, ever had to worry about whether they would have access to hunting, right? They, they were never going to have to worry about that, not just because of the time in which they live, but because of their wealth. You know, they, they, they could go anywhere, you know. Teddy Roosevelt hunted Africa with his son. You know what I mean? They could go anywhere. And yet they were still concerned about these kinds of ideas. You know, it's like when he founded the Boone and Crockett Club. I was in the living room in his home where he called that first meeting of the Boone and Crockett Club. I spoke in that room. Um, and something that's often forgotten about or maybe people just never read the detailed histories. When, when he brought the first group of people together to, to found the Boone and Crockett Club, you know, and they were wealthy people, right? They, they were people who had unlimited access. You know, Roosevelt told them, he said, now there's, there's a reason why you're here. And he said, you know, there, there's a number of them. You know, you have expertise, you're interested, whatever you've achieved. And he said, but one of the main reasons you're here, he said, is you have money, you have wealth. And he said, this country has made you what you are. And I expect you to give back. <laughs> that's why it was a club. You know, that's why you had to be fairly, you know, wealthy to, to be a a regular member, not because, oh, well, I've got money. I'll be a member of this club. No, you'll be a member of this club because you have money and you're going to spend it in the interests. To, to whom much is given, much is required, right? That's yeah, in the Bible somewhere. Absolutely. That's a long time ago by a, a, a man who never had to worry about whether and where he would hunt. Sure. Sh Shane, do you think publicly accessible hunting to not the masses, but to the people that still hunt in a hundred years from now, do you think that's still going to be around? Or do you think we're, it's inevitable that we're going to the European model? I don't think it's inevitable uh, that we would go in that direction. I think it is inevitable because it's already here that we're going to have a shared model. You know, we're going to have places where um, there will be, for better or worse, you know, more limited access by people who can, you know, lease properties or have mm -hmm. a lot of wealth or, or our personalities, uh, you know, to, to your point. But, um, but I do believe that just as 
issues were important 100 years ago, there are vitally important issues before us today. And this issue of public access to hunting opportunity is one of them. Many people think about this problem in terms of land ownership, uh, land management planning, uh, federal institutions, state institutions, and so on and so forth. My own view of hunting's future is that unless we are very determined and very focused and very honest about identifying the human health and food provisioning aspects of this activity to the general public of the United States, of Canada, of, of wherever in the world, it's not going to matter who owns the land <laughs> because we simply will be voted out of existence on other bases. But if we can convince the citizenry, the publics, the legislators, the politicians, the policymakers about that value, and I am absolutely convinced we can, then we could see a real shift in the entire paradigm about land and what its purpose is. The reason I started the Wild Harvest Initiative is to ultimately convince people that we should look at all land, private, or public, <clears throat> first of all, as a food provisioning system for humans and for all other species that live there. That should be the very first priority, and everyone should have that as their priority. Not number of board feet of timber, not the amount of gold or uranium that lies with beneath it. I'm not saying we shouldn't develop that those things. I'm not trying to bring us back to some archetype but I'm saying our policies and laws should reflect first and foremost that those lands are food provisioning systems that provide human beings with the healthiest lifestyle possible. If, there's so much evidence to indicate that you know those wild foods are the best for us that it's we don't even have to we don't even have to discuss it. I mean, I don't think. And so I think if we could do that, then there would be a domino effect across a lot of these issues where suddenly the attention was on the land as a food provisioning system, which would mean that humans, obviously, would have access some, through some mechanism, some set of laws, policies, jurisdictions, whatever. But I would dream of the day where the berry picker <laughs> or the, the, the medicinal plant gatherer or the mushroom forager, you know, and the hunter and the angler, and all of those people would not be seen as outliers in society, but actually would be seen as more or less the saviors of a way of life that's more meaningful than any other one possible. And I think we, to some extent, can gnaw away at, you know, who can lease formerly owned forest lands in the southeast of the United States or in the northwest or whatever. Uh, we can worry about no trespassing signs, and we have to worry about those things. But ultimately, we need a paradigm shift about land, period, and about wild things, period. And I mean all wild things, blueberry bushes, 
you know, to to wild moose. <laughs> and I really believe that if we could get back to that, while we can't have everybody on those lands foraging and harvesting, we won't have that anyway. But we could massively, massively, massively increase the amount of wildlife and wild foods in general available to the citizens of Canada and the United States. We have the science now that we didn't have 120 years ago. We know how to grow wildlife on wild land of any kind, public or private, if we want to set our minds to doing this. And then we have to have the foraging aspect of this, which means why do we hunt ultimately? We hunt to connect ourselves with the ecology of the planet and to provide nutritious sustenance and to spend time in a world of beauty that every psychologist in the world, even people recovering from terrible diseases such as cancer and so on and so forth, are advised by their medical doctors, spend time in nature, spend time in nature, spend time in nature. Excuse the expression, but that's not bullshit. Yeah, that's truth, ancient truth. And so I do think there can be a future. Yes, I do. But I think we have to make some really substantial changes and we have to travel to some extent all the way back to the original arc of our existence. The Wild Harvest Initiative is just my one small attempt to throw a pebble in the, in the, in the still pond that, that will not, if it's left alone, bring us the change that we want. And along that way, many of the things that we've discussed, you know, will you be a personality because you have hunted all these species around the world or something like that? No, maybe it will go right back to the fact that, I don't know, that man or woman, they're a great provider. Yeah. Well, the only way you could you could save it is to is to value it and that's sounds like what you're 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 getting at even valuing the blueberry absolutely we have Versus, to you're totally right there has to be a value we've been skipping over the value to some extent in our hunting journey if you will in modern recreational activity of hunting right we have been we've been stepping over the the vital original things in some cases many cases, we all valued it always. We all valued the food, you know, we valued sharing it. We valued the, the times with family and all that. But we failed to put it out front. We failed to put it out front. But even those media that we have discussed today that can be problematic in this space, think about all the shows that are emerging on television, you know, Netflix and various places such as this, streaming channels of all kinds, you know, where you have, you know, the, the trapping families in Alaska or, you know, you know, you know, and, and many of the people watching those those shows, um, you know, they, they're probably never going to do that. And, 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 and many of them are as urban as urban <laughs> can be, but they're fascinated by this. There's a there's a lesson in this for us. They're they're really truly is a lesson for this. So I could see the value in quantifying um, 
the value of wild foods to society. Mm-hmm. And, and and I could see that maybe slowing down the destruction, but I, I can't see it leading to an increase. I mean, we've lost thir- uh, what, like on, according to the study that Jim and I already say, are always saying we've lost 8% of habitat in the last 30 years in the lower 48 on private lands and 4% on public lands. Yeah. Um, I, I don't see that turning around and like leading us having this abundance of food where we get to celebrate people that shoot 30 big game animals a year as like providers. I, I, I think the best, I think it's a worthwhile thing what you're doing, but I don't, I don't think that I don't see us leading to it, leading to like us having more wild places. I think it at, at best is going to shrink the attenuation. Well, um, I think there are trends that would argue against your proposition. Um, There has been no doubt there has been a trend in the loss of wild land over time. And there's no doubt that in the United States now, in the lower 48, you're only within, no matter where you're dropped in, in the country, you're only about eight miles from a road of some kind. Um... But we see movements in societies in many, many places um, where very improbable things take place for wildlife. I mean, we have abundant tiger populations in parts of India, and that's just a phenomenon in and of itself. We have circumstances where dams, many dams, hundreds of dams, are actually being torn away to allow rivers to run the courses that they had previously. We see in the case of Canada, massive land settlements with indigenous peoples, tribal peoples, um, that will appreciably safeguard those lands um, into the future. Um, And we are, we know that if For example, a society wanted to buy back private land, that that is happening all the time through one form or another, easements, et cetera, et cetera, things that prevent that land from being, you know, deteriorated further, if you will, broken up further and so on. Or permanently developed. Or permanently developed. So you never can expect an arc uh, of human development to just crash. But we are seeing what always happens. These countercurrents are occurring in society. They are not the prevailing current at the moment because numbers of people are increasing, numbers of people on the planet are increasing. And I'm not saying that wild food gathering alone would be the savior in and of itself. But if land management practices Look, I worked as a wildlife manager and researcher for 33 years. There never was anywhere I checked. There's, that's not true. There are a few exceptions. But in most places, most states, most provinces, most countries, there never was an appreciation of land that compared with the appreciation of land that was expressed 
by some of the early cultures of humanity. I think that is true, and I think that's, you know, supportable. I don't think that the society we have today is the inevitable society that we're going to end up with forever and ever and ever. It could be more problematic. It could be less problematic. But we need every argument we have, not just to protect hunting access to land. That's important. We need every argument we have to keep the land, period. We are seeing many, many very wealthy investors in your country and in other parts of the world investing not in land to develop and subdivide, but suddenly there is a real market-driven value of buying land and restoring it with native species back to its pristine circumstances and so on and so forth, and selling it to people who have absolutely no intention of changing that land. This is a paradigm shift that is going on. We have wealthy people very wealthy people in the United States of America, investing in carbon sequestration ideas. Yes, they're doing it because of commercial interest, but that is an opportunity and a phenomenon that will benefit the conservation of land. That has nothing to do with conservation per se, but it's a new value system that is present, a new current that is arising in society as a result of very complicated international issues that will bring benefits to land management. So what I am saying is, well, let's look at all of those pieces. Let's look at the international conventions. On Let's look at the One Health idea, which is going to become the dominant conservation paradigm in the world. There is no question in my mind that will be the dominant conservation paradigm in the world. And the North American model is going to have to find its way into that. And all of that emphasis, all of the laws and policies and finances and investments and money by governments and big industries and so on and so forth is going to chug along after that. It may not because they have purer ideals. It's just like the fossil fuel industry is going to become a leader in renewable energy. Not necessarily because they like renewable energy more than fossil fuel energy. But because that's the way society is going, they have the money and capital to invest. They can become the leaders in it. That's the future of economic return in the energy sector. And they will be the ones who will invest in this. There are revolutions that are going to take place. The recent developments in the pursuit of fusion energy are potentially planet changing absolutely planet changing and the leading research is being right down in your your own country of course on this at the present time so you know it's pretty hard to put a crystal ball up there and say what all of these things are but i believe that more and more whether you're talking a 20 year old urbanite skateboard a kind of coffee I can't even name because there's so many varieties. I don't know what they are, but you know, they're on the skateboard, they're going down the Vancouver boardwalk or they're in San Diego, whatever they're doing from that person right up to the 
elderly rancher in western Montana. The concern over health, longevity, fitness, um, and healthy food is a global phenomenon of huge importance. And I don't think it's going to be sequestered into a little side alley here, but it may take 15 years or 10 years or whatever before Congress, for example, explicitly deals with that. But you both know that massive amounts of money are being spent by the American government along these channels already. And it's not just a democratic thing. It's, you know, it's or versus Republican thing. It's a it's a phenomenon that's catching all up in it to one extent more than another. Look at the court decision recently rendered in Montana in favor of those young people who said, well, you know, climate change and the fossil fuel industry, I'm sorry, but, you know, Montanans may not be a big consumer, but we want this figured into, you know, our rights and our privileges that the court found in favor. Just think of what will happen if that court decision stands after appeal. Think about what that will mean. We better get fission figured out real quick. (laughs) (laughs) I totally agree. (laughs) Anyway, sorry to get off on these tangents, but uh, that's what good conversation does. Yeah. Yeah. I got another line of questioning, but you want, you got something, Jim? I was going to, I was going to tear off of the whole, um, conversation and and start anew so if you have something you want to jump in go for it just so So, i've got about another uh 24 minutes at the most because i'm on another call yeah okay okay yeah yeah be respectful of your time i I want to talk about i wanted to ask him about r3 that was my question (laughs) okay so yeah we we oppose um our little group opposes efforts to to grow the the hunting community um and we do that for a number of reasons one is that in our view it like r3 i I, i've been saying that it it takes hunting or it it, it, what it is in in my view is profiteering disguised as as advocacy um the hunting industry gives money to the nonprofits. it's not it's not so that nonprofits do right by the sportsmen as much as it is that the nonprofits, those are advertising dollars. They try to recruit more hunters so that the industry can sell gear to people that lack it. Uh, so I think it, it corrupts uh, what the nonprofits do. It makes them the advertising arm for the hunting industry. That's one reason. But the main reason is that we are, we exist in the era of, reduced opportunity reduced access as we've been talking about increased insanely increased crowding in parts of the country uh reductions in opportunity in the form of tags things going from over the counter to draw in many many states for many many species even in your country now up until last year you could go to saskatchewan from the u.s and camp out there all fall and hunt ducks with an over-the-counter tag. Now, draw. it's a draw, and if you're fortunate enough to, to draw the tag, you can only go for seven days 
Um, a lot of people come out West way more than ever to hunt. And I think that's largely because of leasing in the East, they don't have opportunity there anymore. So I don't see how a Ducks Unlimited or Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Turkey Federation, et cetera, et cetera, can look at all this and go, the solution is more hunters. It's also terrible for wildlife, I believe. And there's a lot of peer-reviewed evidence that you'll never hear from any hunting org on the deleterious effects of intense hunting pressure on wildlife, everything from body condition scores in ducks, lipid concentrations in ducks, um, spatial distributions in scores of different species. And those distributions are not random. I mean, the animals go where they go because there are things they need there, food, shelter, or food, you know, bedding, habitat, et cetera. Um, even social factors like infanticide rates and brown bears are negatively impacted by hunting pressure. And this is absolutely absent from the discussion of the quote unquote conservation organizations. They are just our three to the max unequivocally. So, uh, wanted to get your take on that. Um, well, Put the R3 movement in context, I guess. Um, if you look at the trends in hunting participation in the United States and Canada uh, over, say, the last 30 years, we know that there has been a substantial decline in the um, uh, percentage that hunters make up in the country. Obviously, that's many factors, the number of people coming into the country, just the rising numbers of people in the country. In some cases, the numbers of hunters have declined and then pick, picked up a little bit and then stabilized somewhat over time. And it's possible to, um, to look at those numbers in a number of different ways, but on individual states and provinces levels, it's certainly true that there have been examples along the way of declines in the number of hunters participating. There have also been countercurrents to that, going back to an earlier part of our conversation, such as during COVID when we saw you know, some peaks arise and lots of people think they will hold. I don't. I think they, they'll settle out in different ways in different states and so on. So first of all, there is this concern about the numbers and that is certainly um, related to, and not divorced from at least, uh, a number of issues of an economic nature, um, including how currently most of the money for state agencies is acquired and appropriated in the United States. That's not true in Canada to the same extent at all, but in the United States, it's still true phenomenally that about on average, about 70% or so of the funding to the state agencies arises from the hunting public. And therefore, anything that destabilizes that is going to be of concern to the agencies and their managers and directors, which it would be to any of us if our responsibility was to look after the long-term interests of that agency. What is far more important and which I, I, I 
can't understand why this is not more front and center is the demographics of the hunting public. Now in the Wild Harvest Initiative and various things we're doing in that, we are looking at those numbers very closely. Um, and while the numbers of participating hunters over the long term nationally or within individual states or provinces can vary and be interpreted in some cases in different ways. There is no doubt at all that we are in the last decade run of a major decline in the number of hunters if something is not done to change the demographics because the hunters that are there are getting older and older and older. There has been almost a decadinal shift in the mean age. And eventually all those older hunters without recruitment are going to stop hunting because they lose interest, they're too infirm or whatever the issue may be. Okay. I, let me stop you there momentarily yep. because yep. this is something I thought about yep. myself. So yep. over time, over the last, since 1991, I've, I've looked at all of the Fish and Wildlife Service reports going uh, on this. It's it's always been the case that hunting, hunters have skewed older. I mean, oh. it, was more, it was more uniform in 1991 than now. But like this, so, okay, here's one thing that's, that's clear yeah. is that the percent, okay, so what we're talking about now and the way we're talking about quantifying it now is if you, we're talking about of those that hunt, how old are they? Yes. That's one thing. And it skews old. There's, there's a, a larger percentage of those people are over 50 now than in 1991. Yes. But there's also a lot more people in that age bracket percentage wise than there was. So it, there's a sense in which we should also be concerned about going extinct as a species, like to, because we could, you can, the, the logic is the same with as applied to the human population or the, the population of the U S for example. So there's a, that the we've over time become older, but I don't think yeah, birth rates have, have gone down. So it makes but sense. It, that, but even if that's, but even if that's the case, so then one, one other, one other thing that I want to throw out there and then I'll let you respond is now let's look at the data a different way. If you look at it by age group, what percent hunt it's very uniform and always has been. I'm not sure. So not now we're not going how many what percentage of the hunting community is in this age bracket. That's one okay. thing. Instead what we're doing is by age category we're going what are how many people are in this age category? What percent of them hunt? This age category. This for, for all the age categories. What percent of 16 to 17 year olds hunt? This okay. is the, the the values they provide in, in, in our, in the fish wildlife service, 16 to 17 year olds. Um, it's always 
you know, it's, it was higher back in the day, but it was higher for all the categories back in the day, but then it's 18 to 24, 25 to 34, 35 to 54 for every group. It's always been the case that the numbers vary hardly at all among the categories. So what you're so, saying is the there's a correlation between the population dynamics for each category and the population that hunt. There's a correlation over time. There's just as many hunters per capita in every age group as there has ever. I mean, the 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 per capita number of hunters doesn't vary among the age groups. Well. I'd have to look at that data that you're talking about to be able to say exactly whether I would agree with that or not. Um, but it stands on logic alone that if you do not recruit into an activity, no matter what it is, banking or the healthcare service or whatever it might be, that you're not going to be able to maintain that activity so the idea so, that i guess should, just so the idea so, that you should not that that people should not try to recruit people into that activity i mean that's always been done through various ways you came into hunting by being recruited in a way in the sense that you probably learned from somebody or went with somebody or whatever the case might be the demographics question is in my view the vital question i agree with you entirely on that we have to know what the truth of the demographics are in every regard to be able to make sense of the numbers. I'm not convinced that there is a perfect match between the age categories of the American hunting public and the demographics of the nation, but we could, I could examine that and I could look at it and see if that's the case. I also fundamentally agree that to some extent there has been a vacancy of logic in the R3 program in the sense that whenever I have asked the question, well, how many hunters do we want? I've never really gotten an answer, whether that's at a state level or at a national level. In other words, we say, we want more hunters or we want hunters to replace the hunters that are dying. Even if the logic is imperfect or inaccurate or wrong, it still seemed to me that there always needed to have been enough thought in the process to say, well, we want in the state of Massachusetts, we want over the next five years, this number of hunters because in my experience, and I stand to be corrected here, I mean, I don't know every state and every province and everything that's you know going on everywhere, but I've never gotten a clear answer back on that question, which I think is critical because that determines how you invest, where you invest, why you invest, and so on. I think there's a there's a constituent that's that that like a large part of it that I think is is profit driven. So I think the the answer for a lot for the hunting industry and the nonprofits is there is no maximum because yeah, well, more hunters be. means more money. You know that that could be, but on the other hand, we can't deny the fact that there needs to be money. 
and that conservation is not cheap and conservation will not run itself. And at least in the paradigm and model that the US system has followed, that money predominantly historically and even today comes from one class of citizens, the hunters. I hear people say that, but like I look at the national forests that I hunt and the BLM land that I hunt. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's managed by the tax, the, 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 the taxpayer pays the, the, the bill on, on it. Like, so I I struggle with this, like the the hunters are the ones that fund all of conservation. I've I've always, that's not true. That is also something I agree with you. That is not true. What the hunters, first of all, if you look at North America, it's predominantly a, a U.S. phenomenon. Secondly, in the United States, it refers fundamentally, primarily, and pretty much exclusively to state agency programs. There is massive investment by the American general public in conservation otherwise. National parks, BLM lands, national forests, et cetera, et cetera, all paid by every single U.S. citizen in one, one way or another through the taxes that they, that, that, that they pay. In addition to that, there are many uh, NGOs that are not involved in the hunting space that contribute a lot of money to conservation efforts, whether it's wilderness societies or protection or whatever it might be. So I totally agree that there is, it is totally untrue to say that hunters fund all of conservation in the United States or even the majority of it. I don't know what the actual number would be, honestly, if we added up all those other programs to which every American citizen contributes that I would include under conservation at least. It's not necessarily hunting directly, but it affects hunting. And in many cases, I don't care if it affects hunting or not. I ultimately care about whether it advances conservation. I mean, that's the most important thing to me personally. So I agree with that. But I don't think there's there, there may be a confidence interval around this number with respect to state agencies. And for good or for ill, the state agency paradigm in the United States has been built around a channel of money. Now, there's lots of criticisms of that, of course, because people say, well, therefore, hunters have too much say, you know, in what goes on at state agencies and so on and so forth. But if that money is to go away from the state agencies, it's got to come from somewhere else because there are all kinds of programs in state agencies from endangered species to, you know, managing populations, human wildlife conflict, you know, any number of programs that obviously require money that don't have to do explicitly with hunting. The other point I would say is that this idea that the hunting community by and large has either ignored or purposefully um, sort of um, hidden or decided not to look at the research that is available on the impacts of hunting, that is true. There are globally, not just in the United States or in North America, but globally there are many studies that show particularly intense hunting, a lot of people involved in the activity in a in a 
considered space and in a considered time interval can significantly alter the behavior of species. Distributions, demographics, breeding patterns, there, there is evidence of that out there in the world. There is absolutely no question of that. And that was part of, you know, Dr. Valerius Geist, who was the first to articulate the model, for example, published work 40 years ago, maybe longer, I don't know, but certainly maybe 40 years ago, talking about this very question and pointing out to how uh, red deer, for example, in New Zealand was one of the examples I remember from that paper. And there were other examples of how their behavior was significantly modified. They became nocturnal beasts, essentially, in that particular study, you know, as a result of constant human presence and so forth. I totally agree with that. And that's where also this question in my mind about how many hunters, leaving aside the very valuable points and arguments that maybe this is a demographic mirror that we're seeing and so on and so forth. I, I, I don't think that's the case, to be honest, but it. I you know, and it, I didn't mean to make it seem like it was entirely. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah. But, but anyway, it's a, it's a very valid point that, but again, these are the very kinds of points that need to be investigated, aren't they? We need to collectively have clarity on these points, right? I just, yeah. I just started recently thinking about thinking about <laughs> this. I never thought about this before, but my thoughts are are just simplified. If you want to retain hunters, you need to have quality hunting opportunities with quality hunting. Um, otherwise, it's it's recruiting is moot. And reactivation is moot if you don't have good hunting. But that, I've, Matt, I've, I've heard you say this before: you can't be R one and R three. You're either R one or R two. We we always say you're either retention or your recruitment and reactivation. You can't be. Yeah. Well, don't forget one comes at the expense of the other two. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If you if you um, examine um, the amount of effort that's being placed on and the number of discussions being held around the issue of access for hunters. I mean, it's not just something that's come up on this podcast. Sure. You know, we have to recognize that this is being grappled with by many, many organizations and institutions that are trying to figure out what the solution to that particular problem is. Right. So it's not as though, regardless of whether one is a fan of R3 or not a fan of R3 or whatever, it's not as though that particular problem is not being grappled with by a lot of wildlife agencies, professionals, NGOs, legislators, you know, whoever it might be. And that's why you see a lot of these programs emerge where landowners are given incentives to allow hunters to be on their land. And that gets into other complicated issues of, you know, special tags or permits and all that. But it's all in trying to grapple to an extent with this idea of access. And that logic is, you know, that logic is unimpeachable. I mean, if you do not have places to engage in the activity, then the activity goes away. Yep. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. that, that's, that's a bottom line, right? Or if you have the percentage of hunters, and this is another bottom line in my estimation of things, if that percentage of hunters falls you know, really low. It's like, I don't know what the number is. Let's say 
0.5, you know, one half of 1% of the, of the population in the United States, for example. You know, at what point does a, an activity or a movement become just immaterial, you know, just, it just like a, like a declining species, eventually they're just too few to get together mm -hmm. to continue things. And I think this is something that we have to think about from a variety of angles, not just in the organic, natural, if you will, recruitment of hunters, you know, you take your son or your daughter or whatever it might be that that happens. But you know, the demographics of our nations and our states are changing dramatically, you know, as a result of the movement of peoples all over the world, and so on, you know, you go to parts of Spain, you see more British people, than you do Spaniards, you know, it's a phenomenon everywhere, right? Um, and everybody carries different values. Like I said, this 8.3 billion, it's, it's just different. You know, many of the people who are coming out of a California to buy land in a Montana or a Texas or wh wherever they might be going often carry very different perspectives on things like hunting, for example, and things like access to land and so on and so forth. And that's also you know, complementing or, or um, uh, complexifying uh, this problem as well. And so it's a, it's a big issue that's tied to big undercurrents of politics and economics in the general sense as well. Yeah, wealth inequality. Yes, yeah. Yeah. there you go. And, you know, it's, um, I mean, we've covered a, a series of global issues, and I think, one of the things at the beginning of this podcast, you asked me to talk a little bit about conservation visions, and I tried to connect this North American and global effort. And this is what this little entity that I have, you know, very small, tries to do. But if you think about it, a lot of the topics we've discussed today really do have international relevance and international connections. Mm -hmm. You know, changing cultures is a is a is a universal phenomenon now, right? I mean, I grew up in uh, rural Newfoundland is about as isolated as it possible to be. Um, and uh, I just never saw people who weren't of, you know, European descent, mostly Irish or English descent, you know, everything, our, our expressions, our music, our, our way of life, everything came from there, our humor, our music, songs, everything. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very different now, of course, you know, it's, 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 it's so, so much more diversity. And that diversity, you know, just brings different perspectives and different values, some of which are uh, kind of antagonistic to use of nature, some of which are fanatically in favor of it. Yeah, like uh, I, 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 this most recent report that came out, uh, American attitudes on hunting, fishing, and shooting sports. Uh, Spanish people are, are uh, Sp Spanish Americans are the ones most opposed to, to hunting, and uh, they're the ones that are the population that's on the rise the most in the U.S. Yeah, interesting. Gentlemen, I'm sorry to have to cut this uh, loose, but we've had two hours, and I see I'm one minute 
two minutes now, I think. Yeah. Almost two minutes over here, and I got to jump on another call. So, Hey, thank Shane, you. thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, All thank right. you, Shane. No, I enjoyed it immensely, and I'm happy to revisit any of the things that we didn't get a chance to cover at another time. I think it was a very stimulating and challenging and worthwhile conversation, and many of the topics that we covered here today, I think, are are just vitally important. They're mainline issues. And whether any of us are right or wrong or, you know, on any of these things um, is kind of far less important than all of us getting a better understanding that these are actually the dynamics that will, you know, shape the future of what hunting and what conservation look like uh, in the United States and Canada. And, we're pretty influential countries in a lot of ways uh, with respect to these ideals and these ideas. So what happens here, what happens particularly in the United States of America, I would say on this front is, um, is a critical bellwether for what may happen in uh, lots of other places as well. Agreed. Well, I, can't tell you how much we appreciate the work you're doing and thank you so much for coming on and and sharing your uh your work and your thoughts on on all this stuff we're we're deeply interested in absolutely well i can appreciate and sense your deep interest in these uh, issues and it was uh it was an enjoyable couple of hours so thank you very much for having me thanks take Shane. care shane take okay. care all the best take care bye-bye